secrets of a dance hit with Ridney. Hello you, welcome back to another episode of Secrets of a Dance Hit. We are in season two, you must know that by now. I'm sure you do. My name is Ridney and this week's guest is someone who really has influenced my DJ career. First seeing him when I was about seven years of age, eight maybe. Uh, the DMC VHS videotapes, they were the DJ battles, turntablism, scratching, all that kind of thing. I got hold of one of those tapes when I was a kid and boy, to see this week's guest scratching with snooker cues and rugby balls and doing all kinds of crazy tricks and beat juggling uh, really influenced me and uh, he went on to have a huge career noticeably for a track called Hear the Drummer Get Wicked, which is just now still a big tune. This week's guest is Mr. Chad Jackson. Secrets of a Dance Hit with Ridney. So welcome to another episode of Secrets of a Dance Hit. And of course, we have got another incredible guest. This one is somebody that I've really wanted to get on the show just because they've had such an influence in me wanting to be a DJ. So welcome to the show, Mr. Chad Jackson. How are you, sir? Hey, Ridney, you're right, man. Thanks for having me on. No, pleasure, pleasure. Now, I don't know where to start. I kind of want to start with the DMC stuff, if you're happy to, or even before that, if you're, if, if you're happy to. But the record we have to talk about today is Hear the Drummer Get Wicked, which, guys, if you've not heard that record, <laughs> I just think it's such an important record and still sounds amazing today. It really does. It just, it sounds awesome. And, and it's never out of place at any gig, really. Certainly, I hope you don't mind me putting the word party gig in there, but I just think it, it, it jumps so many people over so many years. It's, it's a really important record. So Parties are good things, man. Parties are good things. I mean, it, I've, I've, got a very, I've got a very measured perspective with things like that as regards things that are commercial and things that are underground and this, that, and the other. I mean, I love it all. And, um, you know, there's a certain certain skill in making something commercial that will hit a lot of bases. And I must admit, I feel really lucky and, and, and honoured to have actually, in my opinion, kind of almost managed to do that with that record. It kind of, you hear it in a lot of different places, you know, which I'm yes. really, really proud of. Yeah, I think I think that's what I was trying to say in a very clunky fashion. It, it you just yeah. hear it in is although I'm get you know it's a it's a club record. It's just you can hear it pretty much anywhere these days in different in different places. So that's an incredible achievement. So where should we start? I mean, I know there was obviously life before DMC, but for me as a, as a as a seven eight year old, I found the DMC um, videos. And for anyone who doesn't know, these were like DJ battles that happened every year. And now I know you can watch all these kind of things happen on YouTube and as they happen. But when I was a kid, uh, it was the only way you could really watch proper turntablism and, and DJs battle it out. And these, you know, I remember the VHS is coming out once a year, maybe twice. And uh, your name popped up and you, you, the things you were doing, scratching with snooker cues and rugby balls and all kinds of American football should I say not rugby it was in, it was just blew my mind I was I, I can still sense now like my jaw dropping to the floor going what the heck is this it's incredible so yeah all, all, all I was missing was a clown suit <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was just doing something different I mean for me you're not meant to touch your parents turntable for a kickoff but there's a guy doing it, making it sound amazing, and with a snooker cue. So at that point, I think I'm going to have to hand over and just let you kind of explain how, how things were happening for you. Um, well, well, a quick, kind of quick potted history, if you like, leading up to that mm, point. I, yeah. I, I started off from about seven years old as, as being a record collector. And from then on, I've just been a... a, a a mental record collector and now, you know, now uh, audio file kind of collector and I was CD collector and da 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 all the different forms that we've gone through. And um, and I, I became a DJ in the early days and I was very lucky to get a break where I uh, I took over. I was, I'd learned how to mix. Um, I used to BPM all my records and have a humongous book that I compile myself. Wow. Um, uh, my kind of Bible, if you like, which had all the BPMs of all the records that I owned. And this thing was like, 
War and Peace, it was that thick. And what I could do was if I was doing any mixes for the radio or whatever, which I started doing early on, I used to go into this book and find tunes that would kind of um, uh, uh, mix together because we didn't, you know, we didn't have BPM analyzers yeah. or anything like that. It was just count count the beats over a minute with a stopwatch and write it on there, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I had this book which really helped me because for a long, long, long time I was, I was doing the mixing thing. I can't even remember how I kind of got into it. It was just something that happened. It was because I'd all, I've always been a musician anyway. I learned the piano when I was younger, so it was just another extension of being a musician for me. Yeah. Um, so... So I, I I ended up doing I, I ended up getting a really big break. I, I started to do well. I was doing local clubs and stuff uh, in the northwest, and uh, I, I managed to get um, the opportunity to take over from Greg Wilson, who was a really good close friend of mine at that time, has been for years, and he he kind of he was one of my original mentors because I remember there was a, a piece in the old record mirror that used to be the Bible, mm. uh, James Hamilton's column in Record Mirror it used to be everybody's Bible. You've not got a you know, in those days, information was few and far between. It was magazines and that was it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and and I remember seeing a post, uh, James Hamilton put, he was saying, uh, Greg Wilson is, you know, the only mixing DJ in this country, this, that and the other. And I, 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 went, I went so far as being so incensed that I sent a letter to James Hamilton going, he's not the only mixing DJ. I've been doing this for years. So I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was young and hungry. And... Um, and I ended up meeting Greg and we became really good friends, you know, and he was kind of my, one of my original mentors. He, he kind I think he, he taught, he definitely taught me how to tape edit, which was essential right. in those days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Explain, so you, do, do you mind just sort of explaining that for you know? I, I know what you're talking about there, but for for guys younger, you know, younger people, yeah, listening sure. To the, well, to with, the, the, with the tape editing, you had to get a reel to reel tape, and you'd record your stuff on there, and then you'd go back, listen through, and then actually cut with a razor blade pieces of tape and connect them to another bit that you'd recorded a little later on, which carried the thing on, you know, and also it enabled you to shorten things a lot more, so you could maybe. I mean, I used to do a lot of the stuff live. I'd just press record, go live for maybe 30 minutes. I mean, the tapes only, depending on what speed you were running yeah. the tape, yeah. um, they were usually about half an hour it had run, 25 minutes. So, But I used to stick them on really low speed because I needed to, I needed to have a mix which could play over the whole hour. Yeah. Because we used to do, we used to do uh, end of year mixes on Mike Shaft's show on Piccadilly Radio, which was the main commercial station in Manchester at the time. Really big show, you know. Yeah. I'm indebted to Mike for all the help as well. And uh, and these mixes were an hour long, so they were all the best tunes of the year. They were they were they were um, they were broadcast on New Year's Eve, and everybody was waiting with the fingers on pause buttons of cassettes. Yeah, at yeah, the time, yeah, ready to go. To yeah, them. of course. Yeah ready to go because it was an hour of music without adverts or anything so it was you didn't get that very often especially on radio at yes. that time you know yeah. so so uh, we used to edit these mixes up on reel to reel tape so it was picking your you know I'd do a live uh, a live throwdown for 25 minutes then I'd go in there and I'd, I'd pick out bits or do it in sections and then just connect the two bits of tape with by cutting it with a razor blade and sticking it back together with editing tape, which is very much like very thin, white, uh, sellotape type mm. material. And uh, and that's how you used to build up your mixes. So, and this was essential for the year-end mixes because we used to run a competition where the questions were uh, how many records were used in the mix, how long did it take me to do, and how many edits and we had hundreds and hundreds of uh, entries. And uh, the, I, I think I remember the answer to one year was the number of records was something like 250. Oh, the number really? of edits was The number of edits was something like 900. And the number, wow. of, um, the number of hours it took me to do was something like 75 or something. So it's like these were... They were like we'd incredible work, labor work, work. of love, right? They're just, yeah, you, th I'd, you I'd think work, now how that's achieved in Ableton and, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do the, the same yeah. myself nowadays in yeah. Ableton and stuff. It's just so completely different. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not rose tinted glasses saying it was better in those days. It was just a different skill and it took more time and you had to invest a lot of time, really. Um, I mean, you do nowadays, but in slightly different areas, you know. I mean, things, things change, everything stays the same, you know. I, I kind of see quite a lot in life. Um, but anyway, the, the, the editing thing, we'd edit them together 
And, um, you know, it was a laborious process, but it was very satisfying because it was, I, I liken it to, I don't know, you get a piece of wood and you get some you know, chisels and whatever as a carpenter and you actually fashion some incredible kind of um, figurine or whatever out of a, a bare lump of wood, you know, and it was very much like that, very much a, a kind of skill that took time and, and effort and, you know, etc. Um, so... Once you'd finished it, because of all that time you'd invested into it, it was kind of like it was a very special thing to you. It was like a period of your life. And and the people who used to record them, I notice even now, they're almost religious about these mixes because they knew at the time the effort that went into them. They were so glad of it because, as I said, it was the only place you could get an hour-long mix of music, you know, um, without adverts or anything. Do you, do, you and, uh, do you still have copies of them? Do you, do you collect? Oh them? yeah, 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 yeah. I've got them up. I've got them up on my um, uh, SoundCloud. I think uh, the original tape recordings. What I'm doing recently, actually, is I'm going back to the original uh, reel to reels, and I'm going to remaster them and stuff, oh, and my bring them out How because cool so many people have been bugging me about getting copies of them and stuff. You know, um, because the cassette copies obviously had the occasional. Um, the occasional, I don't know, pick it in the radio, yeah, two, six, yeah. what kind of kind stuff, of yeah. idents over there, like once or twice throughout the mix, you know. So getting a nice pristine copy, loads of people are just kind of gasping, gasping at the bit for something like that. Yeah, so, and I'm, I'm intrigued um, that stations may may want to rerun those sort of things again if they're all polished and remastered, because, like you say, it's really capturing a period of time and the kind of. Um, art that is you putting that together because I just think I think you can't really you don't want to lose those do you for for historic purposes just for yeah, how yeah. things were well, done well, I think it's really important to keep them yeah yeah I mean it's it's also in an interesting way I listen to them now because I had to fit so many tracks in these mixes over an hour certain tunes were only going on for 10 seconds but it was about really judiciously using the very best bits of each tune, if you like, yeah. in that 20 seconds or so, you know, which for some reason, I, on the on the whole over the mix, I think I managed to do. So that increased the amount of effort and time that it took, mm. you know. Um, so they're like a real snapshot. And also, if you think of it in modern terms, you know, we're, we're very blip-vertish nowadays, you know. We've got, we're all time poor. Things happen really quickly. We're used to things happening quickly. If things happen, you know, people get situated, all of us get situations where somebody sends us an email or a text, and if you don't get back to them immediately, some people are a bit like, well, what, what, didn't, aren't you going to answer my text? You know what I mean? The, the <laughs> world's kind of gone a bit mad. I but do. anyway, we're used to all that fast speed stuff. And because these mixes, there were so many tracks in them, they've almost got a modern kind of flavour because everything's just, you know, a tune comes in and you groove to it for a minute and then another one comes in. So it's very much, you know, yeah. that modern kind of attention span, lack of attention span thing going on, you know? Yes. Um, so they're kind of interesting to listen to in, in those ways. Um, but to cut a long story short, I was doing these mixes, as I said, took over from Greg Wilson doing the mixes on the on Mike Schaff show. And took over uh, a couple of gigs that Greg used to do as well. Wigan Pier in Wigan, which was an amazing American-style yeah. nightclub with lasers and everything at the time. And also Legends in Manchester, which is quite a, you know, excuse the pun, legendary yeah. kind of night yeah. venue. Um, and then uh, later on, I uh, I heard, I mean, I'd started to go to the Hacienda in those days, in the very early days. And the, the first minute I walked in, I was like, oh man, I need to I need to play at this club. Yeah. So I basically had a, a meeting and got the uh, Saturday night at the Hacienda as residents um, for uh, a year or two. And that kind of led into me hearing about the mixing championships because I was obviously for years I've been doing loads of mixing and I, I saw this thing happening the first year and I was like oh man that looks like fun so I just entered it the next year you know I entered it forgive me you were already playing the Hacienda before you yeah. even competed in the yeah. DMC I did not know that how awesome yeah. is that I mean, it, it, the Hacienda wasn't the legendary venue it is now in those days. You know, it was still building in a mm, lot of ways. Yeah, in the yeah. early days at the Hacienda, I mean, a lot of us say, a lot of us early guys who went to the Hacienda in the early days always remark about how empty it was sometimes. Right, right, but okay. By the time I got, by the time I got to play there, it had started to really start to pick up, and it was 85, 86. Yeah. So it was just before 
the um, you know just before the big house monster train hit yeah, yeah, Hacienda yeah. and and everywhere else in the country really you know yeah. um, so I was in just in the inception before that and I was playing a lot of proto house stuff oh like what like keep on D train like yeah. um, like a lot of Prelude Records kind of disco stuff that was quite quite um, synthesizer ish and drum machine kind of led you know yeah we were kind of playing a lot of the early house already but. Um, but the, the thing hadn't quite caught on at that time, you know. Mm. I remember people, people. I remember, um, I think Graham Park, one of the other residents at the house, always says this as well. He obviously had the same person coming up to uh, see him in the booth. But sometimes you get people coming up and kind of going, what are you playing all this, you know, I won't, I won't mention the term, what are you playing all this rubbish music for kind of thing, you know. Really? And then suddenly, you know, suddenly a few months later, you'd see that person kind of on the dance floor, kind of gurning <laughs> to, to a load to a load of acid house. You know, it's you gotta love that. You gotta love that. You know, excellent. So I saw the mixer championships, and I thought, I've got to, I've got to go for that. You know, um, so I went for it. First year, I got the UK title, and I was picked at the post in the world title at the world final by DJ Cheese, who was a brilliant early DJ and and was very much one of the early kind of proponents of, of real heavy scratching, lots and lots and lots of scratching, mm. you know, and patterns and stuff. That was the year that scratching really became a thing. And that from then on, it was an integral part of the, of the mixing championships. Because before then, the mixing championships were kind of about guys doing kind of beat mixes and stuff and doing a nice, smoothly flowing mix. Right. Okay. I did. I didn't realise that. That's kind of the inception of what happened there with with those DMC events. I only ever came in with with the scratching, and that was kind of like eyeballs on stalks moments. So it's interesting to hear how that flowed as uh, you know to become what it is today from the beginning of that. You know. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first year I entered it. I, the mix I did was had a little bit of scratching in it, but it had like you know it was a very I was trying to hit all bases, if you like. Yeah. I was trying to do some nice, interesting mixes, some nice long mixes, some nice quick chop cuts and stuff. And it was almost like I had this little recipe and I had to fit all these little bits into this mix. Yeah. But after after that year that I did that mix in where DJ Cheese won with just loads of scratching, you know, and, mm. and hardly any, I mean, maybe three or four tunes he played, but he was just cutting between them and doing loads of scratching. Really great performance, you know. Yeah. And that was it. From that from that year onwards, it was like everybody had to put quite a large element of, of turntablism and scratching and stuff in there, you know, which yeah. was good. I mean, that was the way it was always going to go. You know, there's people who, who who argue the fact at the time who were like, you know, just thought a lot of the scratching stuff was a lot of noise and they, they kind of w wanted to hark back to, you know, DJs doing some nice, tight, smooth mixes, kind of quick set. Really? But uh, the other competitions <laughs> have appeared in recent times that kind of en enabled DJs to do that, aren't they? I think there's a Red Bull thing, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely, like that. absolutely. Where, where DJs are actually doing a set, if you like, because I was I was the same when I entered it. I was playing clubs, I was playing sets, I was used to that. I was used to playing all night. Never mind, you know, in those days we played all night. There wasn't a, there wasn't another DJ or another few DJs. It was you were the you were the one playing all night you know yeah. so I was used to I was used to mixing live and keeping the floor going and this that and the other you know but suddenly there was this new new perspective to kind of take things with all the turntablism mm. stuff so so the year after um, DJ Cheese declined to defend his title and as per the rules of the uh, DMC competition at the time the runner-up gets to take his place and, you know, so I got a free pass to the final right. at Royal Albert Hall, which I was, I was really pleased with because I didn't want to go through all those heats again. It's absolute, oh man, pressure, 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 you know, sweat, blood, sweat and tears. But anyway, I got a free pass. When you had to do the, um, the various heats building up to a final, did you have to do a different set for each one? Did you have to come out with something different for every heat or could you kind of dine out a little bit on the same set? I think I remember, I mean, it's, I must admit, it's, it's a long time ago, but I think I remember that I did change the set up a little bit because I was... Because it was an unknown quantity of the competition. It had only been going for a year. I and a lot of the other guys, presumably, were very unsure as to what was wanted or, mm. you know who the judges were going to be and this, that and the other. So I, I couldn't have been, I couldn't be sure that the judges were going to be the same people at the final, if you know what I mean. And so if I did exactly the same thing, they might be a bit bored with that. I might get marked down. So 
my thought processes were, you know, I may as well do something different for, for each heat and stuff, you know, which is, I'm sure that's what I did. That's like the geek in me coming out wanting to ask you that. Surely, again, I think back straight away to just think how much time Chad had to put in preparing different routines for different, you know, or or another DJ would have to prepare all these different routines for different heats to try and get themselves well, through. Well, in, you know? in the turntablism mixing competitions, people are still like that. I mean, the amount of time, I mean, I, I remember it was a year-long process when I, wow. you know, when I knew that I was possibly, well, I probably knew a couple of months or maybe a few months after I'd actually, um, the, the first competition I was in, that DJ Cheese wasn't going to, defend so from then on i was just practicing full stop until the world final you know people still do that nowadays i mean it amazes me i mean i'd love to still kind of do a bit of practice if you like you know because it is very much like a drug once you start doing it it's just it's fun you know you're creating yeah, yeah, something. yeah definitely you've got a skill you 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 know you're perfecting a skill but because of the amount of time it takes i just can't now afford that amount of time to yeah. put into things where you know as we know the, the things we have to do nowadays social media da 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 sorting of gigs doing gigs that's a shame though isn't it that, that the creative side gets pushed a little bit because of the world of social media and you know what I mean it's yeah I know I mean some things just the investment of time in some things like turntablism is just too vast mm. you've got to basically you know that's got to be what you do for at least four hours a day right. probably, you know, is, right. is practicing, yeah. you know. And also, one of the other things I've noticed, you know, I mean, obviously we all get older and our bodies start to kind of fall apart. And I've noticed recently over the past few years that I've got a really bad RSI problem in my right arm and with my tendons. So really? I actually physically can't really do that hyper, hyper fast going mental stuff now because after maybe after 10-15 minutes I can feel my, my wrist and stuff is really starting to hurt if you're trying to crab and stuff on the on the crossfader yeah. it is mm. it, oh wow mm. I, I suppose that is a thing but you don't until someone like your good self sort of explains that to listeners you wouldn't realise that's a thing but of course it is yeah I mean it's I mean it's very similar to piano players and things mm. like that yeah, you know, yeah, over yeah. time they get kind of problems like this um, and you know, one of the one of the reasons why I've got it is definitely the years and years and years of using a computer, which we all do. Yeah. And you know, being being sat in the wrong position, holding the mouse in the wrong position, having a rubbish mouse, etc., etc., etc. It's maybe thirty years of doing that eventually has some effect. So beware. Kids. Yes. Good advice. Good <laughs> advice. I mean, you absolutely smashed it, and. Um, you know, I can only assume. I'm, I'm, I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but I'm assuming the kind of global coverage you got with winning and and all of what you did with DMC just elevated you globally, right? Well, well, I was I was really lucky because that that enabled me. I mean, I mean, it's funny what you said uh, earlier on about the snooker queue and whatever. I mean. Part of the, the preparation for that world final set was also, I knew it was going to be at the Royal Albert Hall, and I was just like, right, if there's some people sat in the back, they're not going to be able to see anything. So I've got to get some visual elements in yeah. this, not yeah. just head down, mixing, scratching, which is, you know, a majority of people that, at that time were heads down type of stuff, which you need to do sometimes because it's so difficult. But I wanted to just give a little bit of showmanship into things because I knew it was going to be a great big huge hole, yeah. you know? So that's why I threw in the, the little trickery bits and the, you know, the, the, the um, snooker cue and the American football and stuff. And also, you know, throwing a, <laughs> throwing a flag over the mixer and just mixing, dropping the needles without using the mixer and yeah. just kind of doing stuff like that. Just little visual bits that, People could see and hear what was happening and go, oh man, you know, how's he doing that kind of thing? You know? I'll, I'll be honest so, with you, there are literally two people that stick out in my mind. If you say DMC and it's you, and the other one is DJ David in 1990 when he put himself, well, he span on the turntable, didn't he, at the yeah. end of his set? And I'm just like, yeah. if anybody's listening and you've never seen these before, just get on YouTube and, and watch because it is. It's fascinating. It's truly fascinating. Yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, you know, I'm, I'm, the purist in me has always said, you know, well, what's that got to do with kind of turntablism? I mean, to a certain extent, uh, you know, that's right. But 
in a competition like that, especially in those days, you just had to give a bit of a visual element because it was all so new. It was almost you were you were showing people something they'd never seen before, so you couldn't go too crazy, crazy bonkers, you know? Mm, mm. I mean, I do understand as well with the passage of time that, you know, I'm not the greatest turntablist in the world. I never have been. You know, I look up to people like, I mean, the person who won the world final the year after me, Cash Money, he'd, he'd always been a, an absolute legend yeah, to me and yeah, I've followed his career. Yeah. And also Jazzy Jeff, who yeah, never absolutely. entered the finals. But Jazzy, I mean, I know Jeff, he's a good friend. I mean, you know, a lot, I'm lucky, a lot of these people are good friends now. Um, and, He's probably my favourite DJ because he's got history, he knows his music, he can yeah. he can really flow. He's a musician, you know, and that, to is, me, yeah. turntablism is, is just an extent of my musicianship, you know, with the piano and everything else. Yeah. Um, so the, the really good thing about winning it was I was probably the first DJ to kind of start world touring. I mean, I went on a world tour basically for the next two years. Uh, went all over the place. I mean, it's easier for me to remember where I didn't go than wow. where I did go. And that was um, that was purely from the DMC stuff, or was mm, it a combination? Mm. It, it is fair to say it was the DMC that yeah, opened yeah, that ab- up. Yeah, absolutely, wow. because it was it was a world platform. I mean, it was so new at that time. It was really it, it got quite a lot of press. I mean, I remember people. I mean, people were really passionate about it as well. I mean, mm. I remember. When I won the world final, you know, there was a, another guy, another friend of mine, CJ McIntosh, who was in the in the final, and he had all these London fans, and they were all going, "Oh no, you know, it's, he should have won." And then certain people were sending letters to um, Music Week, um, the main music magazine um, for the industry, saying kind of a great big long letter about, you know, this is a shambles. Why did he? Win? You know, people were so passionate about it; it was crazy. You know, wow, wow, wow. Um, But because of all that visual stuff, maybe, you know, it it imprinted me in a lot of people's minds. And I I just ended up doing this world tour and stuff, which was just amazing at the time, you know. Um, Yeah. I mean, a bit weird, a bit weird in moments, but amazing at the time, you know. And I also got to, I got to absorb a lot of other, other countries' cultures and music. And, you know, it was a really, it was a really good kind of inspirational time for, for my creativity as well. Yeah. You know? Because what I do is, I mean, you probably know what it's like when you're heavily touring, it's very hard to get time in the studio. You know, it's, it's easier nowadays because people have laptops. So you can actually, you know, get your laptop out in the hotel room or on the plane and do some work, you know? It is. But, but it wasn't it's, like that then. No, and it's sketches, isn't it? I find when you're traveling yeah, and trying yeah. to write, all you're getting is kind yeah. of ideas, whereas you can't formulate properly... That, you know, you can't go through the whole process of the track, or at least for me personally, I know some people can work on headphones and all that kind of yeah. stuff, but yeah, I know exactly what you mean. For me, the important part, I mean, uh, you know, to to wind forward a bit, I mean, I'm not going forward, we're going to go back to the, the drummer in a second, but um, to wind forward, I've, I've been uh, lecturing for a few years now at university and I've been teaching music production, and because of all the experience I've had doing that, I very much come from the camp nowadays of, and I always have been of, of it's the ideas that are the important thing yeah. for me. You yeah. know, I'll get the idea down and get the ideas down and that's it. I know that, I know that it can be produced from there and, and you know, and made to sound great and everything. So almost in a, in a way that doesn't bother me at all. Cause that's just all gravy. It's yeah. like get your ideas down first yeah. and then, you know, and then mix it, etc. whatever, you know, that's, the, the two different halves of a whole, you know, there's the creative bit, which is all the ideas, and then there's the analytical bit, which is just doing your mix, making everything sound good, all that stuff, you know. I think that's, so I think that's very, creative, very good Yeah, the creative idea bit, as I said, is the important bit. And when you get those creative ideas, as you said, you quite often, um, quite often not in a place where you can jot that idea down, you know. Mm. I mean, I get quite a lot of my ideas when I'm driving. And so what I do now is I just immediately put a note on my phone. I'll, I'll record a note in, you know, as I'm driving, obviously hands-free, etc. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, um, and I'll record a note while I'm driving and just say, I don't know, whatever idea it is, I don't know, if uh, box music, I don't know. Let's say I've thought of some crazy name for a label or something. I'll just quickly throw that in because I know that by the time I get home, it'll have gone, you know. Yeah. But those yeah. are the really important little bits that sometimes you can come up with something of genius you know usually it takes 
a few <laughs> quite a few rubbish ideas and then suddenly one will pop out and it's like oh wow man that is that is a killer yeah you know? yeah so winding on after this kind of world tour started doing i mean i'd already been doing lots of mixes and remixes and stuff kind of moving on from the old uh, Piccadilly Radio Manchester days where I used to do the mixes there. Started doing mixes for DMC. Um, kind of 85 or so, so it was while, while I was still at the Hacienda. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first mix I did, I mean, I got quite well known for kind of hip-hop mixes on DMC because obviously I was in mixing championships. I was quite into hip-hop at the time, you know. And it's interesting though, the very first mix I did for DMC was called The Garage Groove, which... I had a I had a, a, a DJ at the time who I kind of worshipped. I thought he was brilliant. I've been following his career for years. Bought all his mixes and remixes. I thought he was a brilliant producer. It was Larry Levan. Now, Larry Levan's yeah. become such a legendary name now. Yeah. Um, the first mix I did for DMC was kind of like my my take on the tunes that he was playing at Paradise Garage in New York. So I call it the Garage Groove. And I'm not quite sure whether all those tunes were tunes that he played, but it was just... I had his vibe and I tried to I tried to absorb his vibe and give it out in this mix, you know. And in a way it's it's one of the, fa- the favorite mixes I ever did for DMC because it, you know, a lot as I said a lot of the other stuff was very hip hoppy and stuff, but uh, I've always been more musically diverse than that. Yeah. And uh, you know, and also, you know, it, it's it's just a really nice interesting snapshot mix at the time. But anyway, I've been doing some mixes for DMC and as I said, um the, uh, that led on to me doing mixes for for major labels and stuff, you know, people like De La Soul and, um, I don't know, uh, Grace Jones, Bob Marley in the early wow, days. Wow. Um, um, Beats International. Uh, God, I can't, I, I can't remember. I mean, I'm surprised I've remembered those. Uh, Run DMC. Right. Uh, so the remixes yeah. were happening prior to to hear the drummer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was all kind of through the DMC right. mixes. Okay. Sections. So I was, you know, it was almost like a platform to show you you, you words to, yeah. the, to the labels, really. So they were getting quite a few of us involved on released remixes and stuff. Um, and then I got this uh, label got in contact with me about, um, about doing a, a remix of DJ Mark the 45 King, the 900 number. Yeah. Yeah, which is the classic, which is the main you know. sax sax riff. That's yeah, the main in, sax with a drummer. with a four bar, uh, two bar drum leak, drum yeah. beat behind it, but sounding awesome. You know, I mean, it, I still think his his record sounds better than mine, <laughs> but it's it's so simple. You know, it's yes. just it's just a two bar loop and it goes around for three minutes and that's that's your lot. But it just so worked and the compression they use on it the, and the I think SP1200 that he, that he used yeah uh, the, the kind of the, the, the flavour of the sampling that that gave to Beats was just brilliant so yeah. that's kind of why I like that original record do you mind me asking had the 45 Kings 900 number been a huge success in the UK or was it kind of more of a this is this is me not ha- knowing enough on that particular record I mean it is obviously a massive record. It, it's huge, but yeah. I got to know your records before I knew that, and obviously the history is with that record. But I, I didn't know personally if that had ever been a huge success in the UK or more of a club thing. Well, it had been out, I think, for uh, I think it had been out for a couple of weeks um, by the time that this label contacted me right. about releasing it. It had been out. It, the American import had been out, so yeah. it hadn't been signed by right, the UK. Right, yet. right, right. Okay, so it's basically, I got. I, they contacted me when they signed it for the UK, but uh, the American, the import, twelve inch. I mean, that was massive mm. in the underground clubs. I mean, I was you know playing a lot of underground clubs and stuff at the time, and that was just that was the tune that the top tune above all tunes at that time. Yeah. Whenever you played that the crowd would just go completely bonkers and all start doing this kind of jumping dance thing, you know? <laughs> and it was it was massive, although it wasn't a commercial hit at all. The Underground Club's number one tune of that moment, yeah. without a doubt. Right. Left everything behind, you know? Yeah. A two-bar loop. That's a, there's a lesson in minimalism. Well, well quite, you know? quite. It just goes to show it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. I think with that loop, you can leave it going and you just don't get bored of it, do you? It's just, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. one of those. I mean, in a way, my version was completely opposite to that. I mean, my version was like throw loads and loads and loads of samples in and, and the kitchen sink as well kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. But, um, 
But I got contacted by the label and they said, do you want to do a remix of uh, 900 Number? And I was like, yes. Um, so they basically said, well, we haven't got any parts or anything. And I was the reason I also said yes is because I'd already had the saxophone loop sample in my samples that, I mean, I'd, right. over the years I've sampled all my record collection and I've had the, you know, the floppy disks and then the zip disks yeah. and then the optical disks and then the hard drives and da da da. So I'd already had this in one of my top samples folders, uh, this sax loop. So I knew I had it. It was uh, it was Marvel Whitney on Wind Yourself, which was a James Brown That's production. Right. That's right. Um, so I'd had this in my collection with like, you need to do a tune with this. Oh, really? Kind it was already flashed, yeah, yeah, does it yeah, need to last? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'd already like earmarked it because it was such a brilliant loop. So it was almost like... It was almost like it was meant to be because, you know, the minute the 900 number came, I thought, well, I've always been wanting to do a tune mm. with that loop anyway. So I went in there. I went into uh, a studio in, I think it was, was it Chesham? I can't remember. But anyway, um, in, in Berkshire and, and uh, Berkshire, sorry. Um, and it was with a guy called Steve Mack. Now there's two Steve Macks. And I was I know just going to say, now. is it who I'm yeah. thinking it is or is it the other one? Well, Steve Mack, Brighton Steve Mack, who's a really good mate of mine as well now, he it wasn't him. It's the other one. It was Steve Mack, who is, I think he got the Songwriter of the Year award last year or something. Yeah. So he's got heavily into like the pop scene and songwriting and producing pop yeah. acts and stuff. So, he's, for, a big, he's a big, big name now. For me, yeah? he's Shape of You Ed Sheeran, Steve Mack, isn't he? He's the yeah, guy absolutely, who came up absolutely. with that, that the, really... There you go. Yeah, there you go. I mean, big, you know, yeah. big boy. Yeah. So, uh, and that's one of this, many, isn't it, for him? He's like literally yeah, yeah, got an absolutely. incredible catalogue. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. So, so he was like the engineer. It was his. I think it was his first proper job in the industry wow. because he's his dad. I think his dad was in an old jazz folk band called Shack Attack or something like right. that. Right. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was Shack Attack. And uh, so, you know. Steve had had a, an, an upbringing of music, so it was automatic that he was going to follow in his dad's footsteps, and, you know. So he, this was the first proper job, I think, he did in the industry. He was my engineer for that record, and he also, um, as part of his engineering duties, he was the programmer on the Fairlight, which was what we used oh, to create that wow. record. The, the old Fairlight CMI yeah, sample. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's the, the basis time, of it, right? Is kind of, yeah. that, but I didn't, that's incredible. And at the time, those things cost as much as a house, right. you know, it was crazy. So right. I was, I was, I was just in awe of like, you know, I was, I was already, already by that time, I was, you know, I had my own samplers at home and my own studio and I was programming, I think at the time I was using Cubase, although I've now moved to Logic and Pro Tools and Ableton, things like that. Um, and I remember that um, I knew how to use my, my Akai's and Emu samplers and all this kind of stuff, but I, I wanted to, I knew that he had this Fairlight, and it was like, well, I want to see how this thing works. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so we went in, and also it took the pressure off me. He was engineer, and I could just stick as the producer ideas man. You yeah. Know? yeah. So I went through all my samples, and I basically got things together that I thought would fit, and what, what I wanted to do was have certain hooks and, Treat it almost, treat it almost like a verse chorusy type record, mm, mm. but with lots of little random hooks in as well, and also trying to keep a. At that time, I was really interested with the sampling thing of keeping things sounding quite real and organic. So I didn't want it to sound too, if you like, too computerized. I wanted yeah, it yeah. to almost sound like you could be hearing this played live. So yeah. that's why I used kind of real live. Uh, breaks and loops and stuff, you yeah. know, which were some of the classics that I think, uh, some of the classics that I had in my folders of, of samples, you know. And I just kind of made a plan of what I wanted, and what vocal hook, and obviously the sax was like, if you like, the chorus yeah. kind of hook, you know. And so it was kind of built like that. And the bass line I played myself and things like that. The, um, there's, there's like a synth horn kind of stab that I played into it. And so it's a mixture of playing and, and sampling, you know. And Steve just pieced it all together on the Fairlight, wow. which was great. I mean, mm. I, I love working with other people. If I need to, I can sit there and do everything myself. But I find I don't really work as well if I've just got to be every man, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, lo I love the fact of what you were saying there about 
um, how you approach the sampling. And I saw I saw a, a thing recently. I, I can't think where the video was on YouTube, but it, someone referred to it as as like having I've got the drummer of from Bobby Boyd's band. Yeah, I've got yeah. I've got um, the well, that's kind of what I had. Yeah, yeah. You've, I've, <laughs> the I just want drummer. the best. I just want the best of as if yeah. I'm picking their parts of their bands. You know, calling. Mm. I want a bit of calling the gang. And yeah. you know, hijacks vocal and stuff like that. And I just thought that's such an awesome way to talk about sampling and not just, oh, I've just nicked a bit of this. And it's not that. It's how it's beautifully put together. And I think that is the thing with Hear the Drummer is I'm just so intrigued on the process you went through to say that really goes well with that. Is it, is it a case of, you know, like you said, when you had the Marva Whitney sort of hook that was on a disc, was it that you'd had a collection of of almost bits of 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 records that you knew at some point you wanted to do something with and it was piecing those together i had a massive collection man because for years before that i'd already been sampling and, and producing and fiddling around and i'd already amassed i mean it's like the record collection and every, all the music that i've collected samples are, are another extension of that so yeah. i've just gone bonkers i mean i'm a bit i'm a little bit autistic and ocd so i tend to really do put if you like, more work in as needed, in a way, you know? And so that's why I do great big lists and stuff. And yeah, I think that's what comes across in the record, that, that it's got to be perfect. It's not, it can't be okay, do you know what I mean? I think, I think that comes through, and that's what makes it stand the test of time. I mean, my musical sensibilities, because I've been DJing for so long, you know, I knew exactly how it should sound. I had the tune done in my head. I mean, I do, really? I do that still. I do that still nowadays. That's why a lot of work happens in the car. I work on tunes in the car that I'm working on at home in my head, and it's almost like I'm in front of my computer. I'm jiggling around and da-da-da and coming up with other ideas and trying something out, and I just do it in my head, and then when I get home... I know exactly what I need to do and I just carry it out and it's all there. Am I right in saying this, that was the case almost with this, even with the 900 Absolutely. number? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I knew exactly kind of yeah. how it should roll. So you're, you're no? sat with Steve Mack and he's like, right, check this bit of Fairlight kit out and you're like, dude, I've got these samples ready. I kind of know what I want to do. I just need you to help me get there. Well, basically, I just walked in and it was like, right, Steve, let's go. And it was just bang, right, take this, right, have that, right, let's sample that, right, let's have this, right, put that there, put this there. Put, that's great. You make that sound a bit more brilliant. Right, job done. I mean, wow. it wasn't that quick, but it was maybe two days. I was going to say, that's that's the question I always love to ask people is sort of what time frame. But again, I think, I think you pointed... Uh, to it in in what you do in your masterclasses, which is if the idea is there and it's flowing, yeah. these things yeah. tend to come out. And and it is the one thing I'll say, Chad, to pretty much everyone who's been on the podcast. You know, if it's not all happening pretty quick, as in the ideas are flowing. You know, if you're getting into day three, four, five, six, and you're still trying to work it all out, there's a strong chance that it's put it in recycle because it, it's possibly not the one this time. Everything seems to flow quick, right? Yeah, well, with all, all the years of lecturing and teaching music production, the other thing that I've realised is that some, you know, some productions and some tunes and some songs that you do are, are, are a, different, a different dynamic. Like the, the quickness, that kind of tune had to be done quick. I would spend a lot longer maybe if I was doing some kind of uh, synth orchestral piece or something that I was doing some really intricate or recording some live Foley effects and whatever to put on this orchestral synth piece. You know, something like that would be a longer process. But this was like, I wanted to make a hit record. I was like, right, let's smash this. And that's what was in my head. I was just, I never, I never imagined it was going to be the big hit that it was, but I was hoping it was always in my head. It's like, aim high. Aim high, you know. Yeah, I'm going to ask a, another possibly stupid question in the in the kind of realm that we live in now, where sampling is is a normality and everything is cleared and 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 so on and so forth. Publishing master yeah. sites that are, yeah. was that ever a concern for you with all the different samples, or were you working with a team that's or a label that kind of were like, you do your thing, we'll we'll fix it. Well, that, that, that's kind of how I thought, but it ended up not. And, and after the event, um, a lot of uh, the labels, quite quite obviously, you know, understandably, got in contact about, you know, 
you haven't cleared this, you haven't cleared this, da 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 da. So after the after the record, I went through a, a long process with uh, excuse me, with the solicitor out at the time of of kind of clearing all these samples and stuff. Right. Had it already um, been circulating as a promo or what What was the kind of, how did that, how did that yeah, flow happen? Was, did you just do it and be like, well, it, yo, I need to get 500 whites out of this or how? Well, it's how interesting. The they, they, pressed, they pressed up a white label. You just reminded me actually. They pressed up a white label and it was uh, DJ Mount the 45 King, 900 number, Chad Jackson remix. Right. And, um, I think that's quite rare now, actually. I was going to uh, say, it must be worth loads on Discord yeah. or eBay. <laughs> wow. But, um, but, but one of the things that happened was that they heard, they heard my version and they basically said to me, well, you know, this, this is like a new tune. You've done so much work on it that it's kind of... I mean, the reason I did so much work on it was because I, I didn't have any parts from the original. I had to basically just go from the sax and build around that, you know? Um, so it was kind of like a new, a new tune, but using the same sample, you know? Yeah. Um, so they said, well, you know, this isn't, isn't really like a remix. This is like your original kind of tune. So we're going to release it as your tune called Hear the Drummer Get Wicked. Right. And I was like, fine. Yeah. <laughs> you All know? good. Um, but then it got released without any of the samples being cleared. Right. And then, um, after the event, all those splits got worked out, you know, um, and it was a very, it was quite a, a, at the time, there hadn't been a definitive test case in court about sampling. I think it was 90, was it 92 or something that there was a, a test case which kind of sorted things out a little mm. bit with, uh, I think it was Bismarcky. Okay. It was a test case with the artist Bismarcky, the rapper from America. Part of me wants to ask you that because obviously what was happening in the States with all the hip-hop guys doing their sampling and then, yeah. you know, that sort of time in the UK that we had obviously your record and there were things like S-Express and Bomb the Bass and and all, all these kind of records. And it, and it was almost... I'm, I'm really interested on, at the time, whether because it was so new people weren't 100% sure on what that you know it's very easy to say now this is what you do and this is what you don't do but that you I always have to think it was so new you know yourself cold cut all those kind of guys you were doing stuff yeah. and then you know Mars pump up the volume another one you know you just yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. wow how did yeah. all these things get get cleared up I'm assuming you know it eventually did all get worked out, but it was, it, like you say, there was test cases in order to try and find out how people were going to approach this this new sampling thing that, that producers yeah. were doing because it was, it, you know, it was new. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we've, we've I mean, I cleared what I could clear, so there was certain... Oh, so there you were, certain right, right, got you. Yeah, there were certain samples like uh, Here the Drummer Get Wicked, which was... Chuck D from Public yeah, Enemy, and yeah, I was yeah. a good friend of Chuck's, and I'd done some work with Public wow. Enemy, and so I, so I actually rung Chuck and said, "Listen, man, I've used your vocal on this new tune of mine. Do you mind if I use it?" And he was like, "Absolutely fine," because some people, you know, some people like a lot of the hip hop heads are, are are of that ilk where you know they sample other people because it's almost like a mark of respect. It's like the jazz world when you yeah. when you um, when you quote some other player's line and whatever. It's kind of mark of respect. And, uh, Chad, so Chad he, I'm just going to have to say, you realise that most of the podcast listeners, like Jaws, hit the floor then when you said, I just phoned Chuck T up and said, can I use your vocal? Because that is sorry, incredible. Sorry. That's incredible that you're able to do that. I just think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, well, I've just I've been a, been around been around for a long time and met a lot of people. That's all, really, nothing special. But I just but, I, uh, how cool is that? That's just cool points plus ten. I mean, he's, that, I mean you know, I'm, I mean, I, re I really feel honoured because people like Chuck and whatever, you know, I really highly, highly respect him. I mean, who am I to kind of be able to phone him up? This this young upstart from Manchester who used to live on a farm, you know. I'm like kind of, but. You know, we're all human beings, so it's That's right. you know he, That's right. he was he was really he was really lovely. He was just like you know, yeah, not not a problem, you know. Wow. Um, but it's interesting that further on down the line, a couple of years later, his publisher actually got in contact and said, "This isn't cleared." And I was like, "Well, you know, yeah. uh, I cleared it with Chuck at the time," and he was like, "Have you got any proof?" Da, da, da. I didn't have any proof, so actually that ended up getting cleared. 
and, you know, getting a percentage of the tune, which is all fair enough, you know. But yeah. at the time, I thought, Chuck telling me on the phone, yeah, man, it's cool. You know, just that was all right. That yeah, was, yeah, was of a, course. I think that any, was a clearance. I think anybody would have taken that as, as go for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's interesting looking at the modern music scene and the way, you know, we've got so many millions of sample packs and stuff out there now that samples and sampling is kind of, it's almost, it's almost still at the same place where people use things and quite often they don't clear it. And then you've also got your re-edit scene and you've got this, mm. that and the other. And there's people selling stuff on the internet where they've not got the clearance for things and da 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 And it's just... It's, it's a wild west out there, even more so, I think, than yeah. it was then. Yeah. You know? I mean, what do you think In about things like the Winston's Amen Brother and things like that? Because they just seem yeah. to have become almost everybody uses it. And well, it's a, it's a staple, isn't it? Isn't I mean, it? The Amen Brother and stuff and Funky Drummer. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, funky Drummer. Break and, you know, and Bobby Bird and all those breaks. They're just kind of like part of modern music it's Absolutely. almost like you know it's like a it's like a, it's like the blues riffs you know all, right. all blues songs use the same kind of chord progressions and that's kind of it's almost like sampling they're just doing using the same thing but writing another song over the top yeah it's you know yeah i don't see much difference in that really yeah, yeah. so you know here the drummer came out um as as it did with with and went on to be an absolutely huge success. I think it peaked at number three in the UK singles. Is that right? Yeah, number three. And um, at the time, I remember. At the time, I remember thinking, "Oh, I got so close." And the only, the only people in front of me were uh, what was it? It was it was Adamski, Adamski Killer, oh, was which it? was an amazing tune. And number one at the at that time when I was number three was. Um, was the England World Cup squad. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I was going to say, that's tough, <laughs> isn't it? Against those guys. But it was, but, but, but the only, the only, uh, the only saving grace was it was the World in Motion one yeah, with, with the New the, Order. Yeah, so there yeah. was a Manchester connection yeah. there again. So I wasn't too bothered. It was like, it was pretty, a pretty cool England World Cup song. Yeah. yeah it, I was going to say, it was, it was a very cool one. And it's apart from uh, what's his name's rap in the middle. That's maybe. what I was saying, the John Barnes rap. That's the bit, isn't it? <laughs> John Barnes, John Barnes, brilliant. Love it. Love it. So, <laughs> you know. So a lot of times passed. Um, how do you how do you feel about hear the hear the drummer now? Oh, I'm I'm uh, I'm really proud of it, man. Because you know, uh, I mean, it, obviously, it wasn't just me; it was Steve as well, and it, and also, you know, the, the label at the time they obviously got it in the right hands and kind of, mm. and also it was it was it was good timing. I mean, sometimes you get given something that from the very beginning, when I got offered it, I I I, I really I really thought, yeah, this. This thing's massive in the clubs, and it just needs a mix with a bit, few more things in it because it's just a loop, yeah. you know. So the timing was right, really, all round. It was almost, you know, um, and I'm I'm really really proud of it. I mean, it it's, it it kind of gave me a, a, a solid hard kind of bedrock for my career, if you like. Um, mm. But there was also, I mean, there was also downsides. I remember at the time. Um, People were so, people were so, uh, how can I put it? People were very, very, if something became too big a hit, for instance, in the charts, um, it's like your underground following kind of dropped off immediately. It was oh, kind right. of like, you oh, you've sold out. You've sold, sold out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. No, and all that stuff, which yeah. is a bit weird. I've never quite understood any of that, you know? Yeah. Um, so there was those downside. It, it was really weird. Once I released that track, I remember for a few months afterwards, I wasn't getting that many gigs because it was almost like I'd always been an underground DJ. Oh, now right. the underground were inter weren't interested because he was like this pop star and all this rubbish, you know? And it, it was really weird. It was really weird at the time. Chad, you you're know? the second person to say that on this podcast. Yeah. Michael Gray said it as well when he did The Weekend. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah, because that's, that's what it used to be like, you know? That's what it used to be like. A bit weird, you know? But See, anyway. That's, that's a really... Um, I'm glad you said that, though, because... I think everybody's always thinking about the success side and and trying to make that hit record and everything, you know. But you don't often hear how that might affect careers or the type of bookings yeah. you get or what might happen because of that. And I think it's really great to be able to cover those things as well and give an insight to it. Well, I actually think that, you know, as I said, all my music production lecturing kind of work 
hearing loads of new producers. One of the kind of, I wouldn't call it a problem, but one of the things they do sometimes that isn't really the way to go about it, as far as I'm concerned, is kind of thinking that way. Almost like I was thinking for doing Hear the Drummer, to be quite honest. I was like, right, I've got to make a hit, you know? <clears throat> but in a way, that's kind of taken over everybody nowadays because they're so, you know, the, the, the earning potential as regards releases and production and, and music has gone down so much that people have got to think about trying to, trying to poke above everything else. So commercial hit, 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 you know, and it's, it's kind of a shame because I think the, the, the onus has become too much upon, you know, pick the right sounds, make a hit, yeah. bang, bang them out. Da, 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 da. Whereas I've always been more onto the creative side. I mean, come up with a good idea first and then build, build Absolutely. a nice track around it. And if it becomes a hit, great. If not, you've done what's in your soul. You've not, you know, you've, yeah, you've, yeah, 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 yeah. It's about creating something, you know, creating something special rather than, you know, as I said, I've got nothing against commercial music, but commerciality just for the sake of it, I have got a problem with. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. You know, it's all about making great music. Yes, really. Agreed, agreed. And and a question that I'm, I kind of want to ask you is. We've we've taken all your lovely collection of samples that you've kind of put together, and and we're in the modern era or whatever. You, you can go back and use them again, but to make a different type of record, would you in twenty twenty in any way be worried about putting a type of record like that together again because of sample clearance and all that kind of thing? Would it ever put you off because those kind of records? Please forgive me for kind of putting yours together with similar records that came out at the time that, that sampled lots of different things, would you ever be put off by doing that now as opposed to what you did with Hear the Drummer because of the sample side? Or as you were saying a moment ago, maybe the creativity is the creativity and it would get worked out if it was a, if it was a big record. I'm, I'm really keen to know how you feel about it today uh, comparative to when you made the record, how I feel about that today is is almost it stifled creativity on the sampling. I'm glad you from, said that. From my, <laughs> from my point of view, because I'm, it's almost like I mean, I suppose I've got the problem of being a well-known name. So if I did a track like that and released it, then everybody'd know about it. And obviously, if I hadn't cleared any of the samples, then there would be letters, there would be emails, you know, there would be all this, and it's. It has, in a way, stifled. I mean, I'd love, to, I'd, I'd find it fascinating to do a track like that again. But you would have to go through much, so much clearance and mm. stuff, and costs as well, right? Just to try yeah. and just to try and make it legal before you could put it on Spotify or something. I mean, one of the bonuses of nowadays is that there is a hell of a lot of content out there that is um, is not, you know, that is up for grabs, if you like. You know, mm. like as I said, with sample packs and stuff. I mean, if you hunt stuff down well enough you know i mean the problem with all that is that you know every every other producer could have them yeah. so every other producer could make whatever song you make out of all your sample packs but it's about it's about delving kind of deeper and, and finding the real interesting bits and then adding stuff of your own yeah. within that yeah so you could make one of those type of records without actually touching anything that that is that would need clearance you know mm. um but do you think the, the kind of sounds and the warmth, you know, the things that you'd picked, I mean, I'm thinking Bobby Bird, Hot Pants straight away. Cool. You know, there's obviously a sound yeah. and a warmth to those drums that yeah. make you go, I need that in the record that maybe something on a sample pack would never even get close to the yeah, vibe. Well that, and, well, that is one of the problems is the reason, you know, we used to use samples is because of the sound they had. And yeah. when we eventually, a few years after that, started to get capabilities of actually replaying stuff and getting stuff recreated it never ever sounded the same everybody who uses samples and has tried to recreate them they always come up with the same thing they can never quite get the right sound no matter how good you are with your yeah. engineering skills and stuff you never quite get that vibe i mean there's a vibe quite often in those in those old recordings there's just the vibe of the room that it was recorded yeah. in is yeah. Know, how, um, do you recreate, how do you find that? You know, I'm a big um, fan of that. I've, been, I've, you know, I've used replays myself, and they're close. But you still think it's it's not the master. <laughs> it's not the yeah. master. You know, there's yeah. something in there, like you say, the room or or process yeah. for recording or something. And again, 
Or some is, certain sound of the desk that they yeah, were running Absolutely, through. absolutely. There's so many variables, really, when you're doing live recording, especially in those days, mm, really. Mm. Certain variables that, that were always recorded. Um, I mean, it, I mean, I've been working on a lot of new things recently, and in a way, I've been some things I've been doing have been have been similar to that, but in a in a less frantic way. Wow. So I've been I've been cool. finding. I mean, you know, my sample collection now, as I said, I mean, now it includes loads of sample packs and stuff, and I'm not. Some people are really precious and go, oh, no, don't use sample packs and this, that, and the other. But I don't care where I get stuff as long as it's good. Yeah. So all that stuff's just an extension of my record collection. Yeah, so yeah, I'll yeah. do loads and loads of wandering to find something that kind of really, you know, I listen to, as we all do, I listen to a lot of music and a lot of samples and a lot of, you know, DJs and, and going out to clubs and hearing things and whatever. So I'm, I know that my ears are really fussy. So if I hear something that sticks out to me, then... It must have some legs, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just wander around for as long as it takes until I find those things, you know? Yeah. So I've been doing stuff where, you know, I've done a couple of disco things recently and stuff like that. Nothing that I've released so far, but I've been playing around and using certain loops and recording stuff myself and mm. piecing stuff together mm. and trying to get that authentic old sound again as well, you know? Yeah. With understanding the engineer type stuff as I do now compared to then. Um, there's, there's so much scope you've got now. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. So moving forward, the, the, those kind of records, you know, there there is obviously more, more productions coming. Is, is, that fair, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I've also got, I mean, I've had a problem over the years of doing a lot of stuff and never releasing it because I was never happy, happy enough with it. And I've been going back to a lot of this stuff, even over the last 30 years. I mean, I did a, after hearing a drummer, uh, I, I was doing an album kind of follow-up to the wow. Hear the Drummer thing. Um, but I ended up parting company with the label and I've got a load of these tracks from this um, album that I was working on. And it was, I mean, in a way, it was the wrong thing to do because I I started to do an artist album where I was kind of, I mean, one of the tunes on there is a 6-8 jazz tune. Really? And Amazing. Things, I'd love to hear that. I mean, there's all these things that I've done and I've got kind of masters of, but... I'd never thought they were good enough. And one thing I realized recently over the past few years is because I've recently learned about mastering, as we all do, and I never really knew about mastering in those days properly, I've realized that actually all that needs is a proper master and it sounds great mm. kind of thing, mm. you know? So I'm going through and remastering a lot of things. Brilliant. Some of them, if they don't quite sound right, I've actually still got all the samples and parts and things and tapes even. So... I actually get them up and, and kind of mix them down again, you yeah. know? So I've got this almost like a life's work that I've never released. Oh, my goodness. Chad, we need to hear that, this. Loads of, stuff, loads of stuff following that as well. I've never, For some reason, I've just been this mental case that will never release hardly anything. Right. And I'm going to say something well, now. I know record labels listen to this podcast because they've told me. If anyone oh no. wants to work with Chad, please... Please make this happen because I, for one, would love to hear it. Well, it's it's quite a collection. Let me tell you that. That's <laughs> it's quite wow. a diverse collection as well. Wow! Wow! So, because yeah, I've, I've gone. Sorry, go on. No, because no, no, I've always been I've always been into such a wide variety of music that you know when I got the chance to do my first album, I was just in there doing loads of different styles. There was even stuff I was singing on and this, that, and the other, and it was just you know it's just expression, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I love that. I just think that's brilliant. If people want to find out more about you, what you're doing now, I've really, really enjoyed your live streams um, during lockdown. They've been brilliant on Facebook. Um, yeah, they've been how, quite fun. Man. Oh, they've been brilliant. Um, how can people, how would you prefer people to get, to kind of get hold of you? What's your preferred um, platforms that, you, that you're using? Anyway, really. I mean, it's, it, it, it goes onwards from, I suppose, you know, from, from my Facebook page. I've got an artist page and also a, a kind of private page. I keep meaning to switch everything over to the artist page, but I keep, I keep not getting round to it. Yeah, <laughs> so much to do um, in there. Yeah, exactly. Too many inboxes, man. Yeah. So, um, the, I mean, just contact me on Facebook or I'm on Instagram as well, um, uh, Twitter, whatever. I mean, any way you can... I mean, I'm, I'm always... You know, I'll always contact people back. It might take a bit of a while, but, you know, you know. Perfect, perfect. 
you know, just any, any way that they can, really. I've also got a website, chadjackson.co.uk. Um, you can, people can mail me from there and whatever, you know. I'm, I'm quite, I'm not that, I'm, in a way, I think I'm quite mysterious because I, I keep low, but, you know, I'm, I'm not that, um, I'm not, I'm not that uh, people averse that I won't No, I would to. say, I would say to anyone listening, get on Facebook, find Chad and enjoy his live streams because they're brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, man. And, and I'll have to do another one of those. Actually, I've been you thinking. Should. I've not actually, I've not actually done one on vinyl yet, which I can't believe I've not done. You that. need to do that. So I have, I have had in my mind over the past couple of days about doing one of those. So maybe in a couple of days' time, who knows? Yeah, I'll get a little vinyl set together and just uh, do the stupid dances with it. There you go. <laughs> An exclusive. Look out for Chad's vinyl set. So uh, yeah, Chad, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and and just an amazing insight into your career uh, how here the drummer came together and uh, and everything else in the studio so a huge thank you and yeah speak soon thanks a lot Ridney big love to one and all secrets of a dance hit with Ridney Huge thanks to this week's guest and of course to you for tuning in. If you've missed any of the previous shows, they are available on Spotify or Apple or the usual providers. Just search out Ridney or Secrets of a Dance Hit. They should all pop up. And of course, don't forget if you're feeling generous, uh, drop a donation into the Patreon, patreon.com slash Ridney and hopefully we can get some more artists on the show. And a big up, of course, to Carl Hannigan for all his amazing efforts on the show. Thank you, sir. And we will do it again soon. Till then, see ya.